there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. I think the feminist movement is in its prime time right now. I think it's it's current, it's now, um, and it plays into equality in such a major way. Rights for Festivals proudly presents the Feminist Writers Festival, Sydney, 2018. Supported by Create New South Wales and Writing New South Wales and produced by Pamela Cook and Kel Butler from the Rights for Women podcast. This session is Legacy Books. This is a recording from the Feminist Writers Festival 2018, Sydney. We'd like to acknowledge that the festival was held on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd also like to thank our partner, the UTS Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion. Enjoy the podcast and connect with us on social media or via the FWF website, feministwritersfestival.com. My name is Nikki Anderson. I'm the director of the Writers Festival, and as I said, it's great to have you all here. And I hope we keep you engaged and um, keep you connected to the festival. Bear with me while I do all of the speaker bios at once, and then the speakers are going to come up one by one and present their piece, and then we'll have a bit of a chat afterwards as well. So, our first speaker for this evening is Karen Goldsworthy. She's an Adelaide writer, former university lecturer in literature. She's published books, essays, short stories and wonderful, wonderful reviews, um, which I'm sure many of you have read. Uh, She was the inaugural chair uh, of the judging panel for the Stella Prize. And in 2013, she won uh, the Pascal Prize for Cultural Criticism and in, and in sorry, 2017, the Horn Prize for her essay, The Limit of the World. Our second speaker for tonight is Erin Goff, who won the Ampersand Prize for her first novel for young adults, The Flywheel. Her second novel, Amelia Westlake, which is just such a divinely wonderful book, and I urge you all to buy it in reading, uh, sorry, in the Glee Bookstore after the event if you don't already have it, um, won the 2018 Readings Young Adult Book Prize. Her long story, Distance, will be published as part of the Griffith novella project, All Being Equal, later this year. It's not out yet, is it? She's currently working on her third book. I don't know if you should ask her about that. She might talk about it. Um, Our third speaker this evening is Ruby Hamad. She's a writer and PhD candidate in media studies at UNSW. Her first book, White Tears, Brown Scars, will be published in 2019. Rebecca Shaw, who many of you will know as Brockle Snitch, uh, is a writer and creator of the parody Twitter account uh, Not Feminism which was developed um, into an illustrated book and is also um, for sale this evening. She was on the writing team at Tonightly with Tom Ballard and has written for Junkie, The Guardian and Daily Life. She makes men on the internet mad, which I think is all she needs in her bio line. And our final speaker for this evening will be um, our FWF chair, Fun Ling Kong, who has two decades of experience in publishing industry as an editor and publisher of books across a wide range of genres. Uh, she's worked in-house at Penguin, Hardy Grant, Melbourne University Press and Allen and & Unwin, and she's re- freelanced for many others. Uh, she's ma- she was managing editor of the Anne Summers Reports and currently she's working at the Parliament of Victoria as the editor of Debates. So please join me in welcoming these speakers and Karen up to the stage. 
Thank you. We've been asked to um, speak about the books that made us, or more specifically the books that made us feminists. Um, I am now sufficiently old um, to be able to say that the books that made me a feminist um, were not any of the classic feminist texts as such. The only two early second-wave feminist books that um, had been published in the year of which I am about to tell you uh, were Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex and... um, What was the other one? Thank you. Betty Friedan. Yep. They had not made their way to the house of which I'm about to tell you. We were always, we were also told that this was a storytelling session, so I'm going to begin in time-honoured fashion. Once upon a time, long ago and far away, there were three sisters. These three sisters lived in a farmhouse um, that most people would have regarded as being in the middle of nowhere. Uh, They had been brought up by a pair of thoughtful and progressive parents who had seen fit when these three sisters were... By the time the oldest sister was 15, which means that the middle sister was 11 and the youngest one was nine, um, to give these three sisters uh, the talk. So the three sisters were all equipped, at least theoretically, to understand what was going on in the books in the forbidden bookshelf in the farmhouse that they were not allowed to read. At this point, I'm going to have to tell you an astonishing fact. The middle sister was me. Um, the, the long ago was 1964. The far away was in rural South Australia. And when my older sister turned 15, my parents, my hard-working parents, decided that she was old enough to take care of her two younger sisters for a couple of hours every Saturday afternoon and evening while they went down to the township and spent a few well-earned well hours in the pub with their mates. Now, it's all very well to say you're not allowed to read those books... But if you then go to bugger off down to the township and drink with your mates, <laughs> your 11-year-old daughter, and my older sister didn't care what I did as long as I didn't smash something precious or break a limb, um, will sit there quietly reading her way through the bookshelf. And the bookshelf contained books that were almost all of which published in the 1940s or 1950s when my parents were young adults, people with young children. And three of those books in particular stayed with me. The first one was a book called, some of you might know, I doubt it though, a a novel called The Cry and the Covenant, which was an adaptation of a real story about a real person. The real person in question was a 19th century Viennese doctor, a man by the name of Ignaz Semmelweis, who, when still quite a young doctor working in a Viennese hospital, was deeply shocked by the number of women who gave birth and then died within a week or ten days of raging um, bacterial infection, known generically as childbed fever. And he couldn't work out why, in one division of the hospital, the number of women dying of this um, postpartum infection, which was ridiculously high, was two or three times the number of women in another part of the hospital. And he worked out in the end that in one part, in the part where there weren't so many women dying, the children were being delivered by midwives. In the part where all of the women virtually were dying, the children were being delivered by doctors and medical students who were coming straight from the dissecting room, wiping their hands on their aprons as they went and not washing their hands between the dissecting room and the delivery room. So Semmelweis, still very young, and a peasant, which of course comes into this, tried to make the senior doctors wash their hands 
and they would not have a bar of it. They didn't like being told what to do. They didn't like having their authority undermined. They were appalled at the idea that they were being accused of having killed these women and they went straight on going straight from the dissecting room to the delivery room. Semmelweis spent his whole adult life, which wasn't very long, um, trying to persuade people that this was the problem. He was basically the, inv the per first person to understand how you could avoid sepsis by washing your hands. Um, and he died when he was 47. He had a nervous breakdown trying to convince people that this was a good idea to wash their hands. Inve eventually he was incarcerated and um, badly beaten by the guards. And, of course, one of the injuries from the bad beating by the guards got infected. He got sepsis and he died of the um, same disease that he had spent his whole adult life trying to save women from. Now, at 11, you think, oh, this is what's in store for me as a woman. Interesting. This is interesting. The second of these books, and now we're jumping ahead a century, set here in Sydney um, in a hot October week in 1944. Some of you might know it. It's an Australian classic novel, really, called Come in Spinner by Dimfna Cusack and Florence James. Um, now, the first thing that struck me about this book was that it had been written by two people, you know, which kind of goes against everything you always think about artists and writers that they're, you know, individuals who sit in a room producing magical things. This was a product of, of extremely successful cooperation between two female friends who had written the book while they were looking after three female children in a house in the Blue Mountains during the war. Um, the book's set in, of all things, the, the beauty salon that is part of a very flash Sydney hotel. It's an imaginary hotel, it's not a real one. Um, and, and there are three or four main female characters, all of whom work in the beauty salon. And they have love lives, you know, and some of the book is about their love lives. But this book would pass the Bechdel test with ease. You know, there are lots of conversations between women that are not about men in this book. Um, there's a very sort of generous and forgiving attitude to the whole idea of the beauty parlour. You know, on the one hand, there's some analysis of how ridiculous, really, the whole idea of a beauty parlour is. But on the other hand, there's also a very understanding kind of um, logic about why women would want it and need it and, and come there. Um, and it was just, a, apart from anything else, that was the Sydney that my parents met in because they were both in the... Mum was in the Air Force, Dad was in the Navy, and they met at one of the kinds of dances that this book is full of. You know, they probably met that week. Um, so that was a sort of, you know, where I came from type book as well as, as well as something that opened my eyes further to what women's lives were like because basically they had wanted to write a book about the lives of women during war. Because there wasn't a lot of that about at the time. There were lots and lots of books about men during war, but very few people had examined what it was like for women left at home. You know, women whose husbands were killed or missing, women whose lovers were killed or missing, women who had perhaps fallen in love with somebody else, um, women who'd been separated from their children because the housing, housing shortage in Sydney was acute during World War II. It was almost impossible to find a place where you could live with your kids. Um, so I learned a lot about women's lives in a, in a better way from Cumming Spinner as well. That book also is full of women helping and supporting each other in the situations in, in which they find themselves. Finally, the third book which particularly struck me is one I'm actually going to read you a bit of. Some of you may know Mary McCarthy's 1963 novel, The Group, which was actually banned in Australia when it was first published. Um, and that too is about a group of women 
a group of Vassar graduates um, who've just, who have just graduated and who are you know, about to be loosed on the world, set in 1933. I don't know how many of you know this, I certainly didn't, but female contraception was virtually illegal in America in the 1930s. Um, there were doctors who had gone to jail for providing contraception to women. Um, so it was a big thing, and it was something that not a lot of uh, sort of middle class and upper class women knew about contraception theoretically. But you know it was hard to get hold of. So one of the one of the group, who's a very proper Boston virgin called Dotty, very daringly goes home from a wedding with a man who's an artist. Dotty has sex with the first sex she's ever had with the artist. Dotty has an orgasm, then she has another one. The artist is intrigued by this. Um, and he's intrigued enough to say he wants to go on seeing her. And he says, get yourself a pessary. Now, she doesn't know what a pessary is. And for a minute, she thinks he said, get yourself a peccary. And he's wondering what sort of practices she's actually, you know, are being suggested here. Um, but then it, it's explained to her that this is a kind of diaphragm, you know, what we'd recognise as a kind of diaphragm. So Dotty very bravely goes to the one female doctor who, again, very bravely is supplying women with these things because she thinks she's in love with Dick. His name is Dick. How good is that? <laughs> she, thinks, she, she thinks she's in love with Dick and um, she thinks that this is going to be an affair and that it's going to be ongoing. So on the basis of this belief, she goes to... He says, get yourself a pessary. So she does. Off she goes. <clears throat> Dotty did not mind the pelvic examination or the fitting. Her bad moment came when she was learning how to insert the pessary by herself. Though she was usually good with her hands and well-coordinated, she suddenly felt unnerved by the scrutiny of the doctor and the nurse, so exploratory and impersonal like the doctor's rubber glove. As she was trying to fold the pessary over, the slippery thing all covered with jelly jumped out of her grasp and shot across the room and hit the steriliser. Dotty could have died. In her gloved hand, when she was dressed and powdered, she took the manila envelope the nurse in the anteroom handed her and paid out new bills from her billfold. Across the street was a drugstore with hot water bottles in the window. She went in and managed to choose a fountain syringe. Because it wasn't, you know, you didn't just need the pessary, you also needed the douche and the douche bag and the syringe that you could apply there, and on and on and on. Um, and it was assumed that this stuff would be kept at your lover's place. Because, of course, you couldn't keep it at home. Your mum might find it. She went in and managed to choose a fountain syringe. Then she seated herself in the phone booth and rang Dick's number. After a long time, a voice answered. Dick was out. This possibility had never occurred to her. She had assumed without thinking that he would just be there, waiting for her, when she carried out her mission. Just give me a call, he'd said. Now, she walked slowly across 8th Street and into Washington Square, where she sat down on a park bench, her two parcels beside her. When she'd sat there nearly an hour, she went back to the drugstore and tried Dick's number again. He was still out. She returned to her park bench. But someone had taken her place. She walked about a bit till she found another seat. And this time, because the bench was crowded, she held the packages on her lap. The syringe in its box was bulky and kept slipping off her lap every time she moved or crossed her legs. Then she'd have to bend down and pick it up. Her underwear felt sticky from the lubricants the doctor had used and this nasty, soiled sensation made her fear that she'd got her period. Soon the children began leaving the park. She heard the church bells ringing for Evensong. 
She would have liked to go in to pray, which she often did at Vesper time, and also to take a hurried look with no one watching at the back of her skirt. But she couldn't because of the packages, which would not be decent in church. Then she tried Dick from the phone in the hotel lobby. After going first to the ladies' room, she left a message. Miss Renfrew was waiting in Washington Square on a park bench. Going back to the square, she was sorry she'd left the message because after that she did not dare annoy the landlady by calling again. She could not leave the square anyway in case Dick should come. The park was getting dark and the benches were filling up with pairs of lovers. It was after nine o'clock when she resolved to leave because men had started to accost her and a policeman had stared at her curiously. It did, not, it did not prove anything, she told herself, that Dick was not at home. There could be a thousand reasons. Perhaps he'd been called out of town. Yet it did prove something, and she knew it. It was a sign. In the dark, she began quietly to cry and decided to count to a hundred before leaving. She had reached a hundred for the fifth time when she recognised that it was no use. Even if he got her message, he would never come. There seemed to be only one thing left to do. Hoping that she was unobserved, she slipped the contraceptive equipment under the bench she was sitting on and began to walk as swiftly as she could without attracting attention to Fifth Avenue. A cruising taxi picked her up at the corner and drove her, quietly sobbing, to the Vassar Club. The next morning early, before the town was stirring, she took the train home to Boston. Now, there you go. That was the bookshelf that made me a feminist. I was a feminist before I hit puberty and I was a feminist before I'd ever seen or heard the word feminist. It was books that made me a feminist and I still am one. Thank you. I discovered feminist literature as a young adult, I'd say by accident. What I was actually looking for was descriptions of girls kissing girls. Um, detailed descriptions, preferably with instructions in the footnotes. <laughs> the first lesbian kiss I ever read in a book was in first year uni. It was in the book Mrs Dalloway by Virginia Woolf and it's the moment when Sally kisses Clarissa. Woolf writes, then came the most exquisite moment of her whole life. Sally stopped picked a flower, kissed her on the lips. The whole world might have turned upside down. It's how I felt as I read that passage, to see such a thing in a work that was considered, um, you know, uh, capital L literature. It was mind-blowing for me. I read to the end to see if Sally kissed Clarissa again. She didn't, which was disappointing, but uh, it was okay. Because what I had discovered uh, by reading Virginia Woolf um, was Virginia Woolf. Uh, someone who expressed her thoughts in a way that I recognised. Who offered critiques of the roles that women were obliged to play. Who enunciated my secret desires for rebellion, for creative expression and for sex. A few years later, I read a book by Sarah Waters called Fingersmith. 
Now, Fingersmith is about two young women trapped in a secluded house in Victorian Britain with a controlling and sadistic uncle figure who has a penchant for literary porn. It's a fantastic setup. Uh, told from the alternating perspectives of the two young women, Waters is able to reclaim the Victorian canon from men. Not only that, she reclaims female eroticism from the male gaze. Because, you see, the two young women uh, fall in love, and rather than objectifying them in the way that so much of that sort of romp literature does, water priv Waters privileges their thoughts and their desire presenting an alternative to the kind of girl-on-girl -girl action so often produced for male consumption. This book was written for me to read. And at last, some instructional detail. <laughs> and then came uh, Dorothy Porter's The Monkey's Mask, the Australian detective verse novel that again subverts and reclaims, this time noir fiction, told from the perspective of lesbian PI Jill Fitzpatrick, what a great name, uh, it uses the lenses of gender and sexuality and poetry to represent the tropes of crime fiction. Uh, Porter writes, I'm not tough, droll or stoical, this is Fitzpatrick describing herself. I droop after wine, sex or intense conversation. The streets coil around me when they empty. I'm female. I get scared. Reading these books made me recognise the feminism in books that I'd actually already read uh, before I knew what feminism was. As a teenager, I was of the era um, and lucky enough to be among the first generation of readers to discover Melina Marquetta's Looking for Alibrandi. Smart and strong, Josephine Alibrandi faces a world of prejudice because her mother committed the sin of having a child outside of marriage, because she's an Italian-Australian from a working-class background in a white middle-class world, and because she's a young woman, which means she faces sexual harassment. Alibrandi is complex, intersectional work. It's humanist, it's hilarious, it's feminist. Importantly for me, it was set in Sydney, in a world that I recognised immediately. I might not have been from an Italian family or in love with a boy called Jacob Coote, but I knew these people. I'd gone to that school. I'd been to Stanmore Maccas. <laughs> what I learnt from Marquetta was feminism in my local context, that there might even be a way for me as a writer to explore through fiction the prejudices that I faced myself. In high school, partly because I hadn't yet come to terms with my sexuality, I don't remember accessing any stories with queer characters. That's not to say that they weren't around, but there were only a handful at the time, and unsurprisingly, they weren't on the syllabus of my religious or girls' school. 
This was the main driver for me to write the two novels that I've written so that there are more than a handful of stories out there that young Australians can access at that crucial age when we're trying to figure out our place in the world. Stories uh, that they can see themselves in, to feel that sense of validation that comes from recognising yourself on the page. Both my books have lesbian protagonists and my latest book, uh, Amelia Westlake, is explicitly feminist and activist. It's been described as a queer feminist heist rom-com, which I really like. Um, I started writing it about three years ago and it was... It was around the time when there was a lot in the news about the Royal Commission into Institutional Child Abuse. And I guess it got me thinking a lot about um, power structures, particularly in the school system, and how they operate to the detriment of students. I'd just finished writing it as the Me Too hashtag exploded, and the book storyline resonates with those themes as well. What I wanted it to be was a celebration of queerness and femaleness, but also a story about solidarity um, that functions as a call to arms, essentially, because who is going to fix this fucked up system if not us? Australia needs more feminist voices, a breadth of stories that actually represents the range of experience in our community. Fortunately, although still too slowly, we are hearing stories from a wider range of voices. I want to mention two young Australian uh, writers that I've read in recent years who've blown me away. Um, the first is Ellen Van Nerven, uh, whose writing speaks to her female Indigenous experience, to deep-seated racism, to colonisation, to queerness. And the other one I want to mention is Nevo Zissen, whose memoir, Finding Nevo, unpacks gender and the politics of gender with incredible wisdom and in the most amazing crystal clear prose. It's a joy to read. I cannot recommend these writers highly enough to you tonight. I feel like we have so many incredible feminist writers to be grateful for and so many more to look forward to. Thank you. Before I get into my books, um, when I was seven, I wanted to be a writer. I, and for a young Lebanese first-generation girl from a, a Muslim background, it was kind of just not even something that would even be in, you know, in the cards. Um, but I took to writing, took to English quite quite young, and. When I was seven, I wrote a, a story in school, in, um, you know, in class, and it didn't seem like a big deal to me. And the, but the teacher read it, and she's like, "Did you did you do this one by yourself?" And I was like, "Yes." And it was about an, a neighborhood witch called Tilly the Witch, who is good witch and then becomes a bad witch and then a good witch again. So it had all that that drama conflict stuff that I realized later on stories need. So this teacher. Um, typed it out and made it into this, you know, this manuscript with a hardcover. And tragically, I have lost it. I've moved around in my life so many times. It's, yeah, I can't think about that. I get, I get very upset. It's, it's gone. It's definitely gone. Um, but anyway, I, I have that memory. And, and so 
she made the class all dress up. Like, I dressed up as Jelly the Witch and they all dressed up as these kids and we did, like, these, these pretend sort of getting on the broomsticks and stuff. And I thought after that, I thought, oh, OK, maybe I'll, I want to be a writer when I grow up. And, 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 yeah, it was something that then fell away um, from me in, in, in my life. And when I was in my early 20s, I was in Canada in a, in a hostel in, in Vancouver and I was in, like, you know, one of those really ultra-budget hostels with about 15 beds in, in, in the dorm. And this book was on the shelf next to my, my bed. Not this particular copy, um, but this book. Uh, Kate Atkinson's debut, Behind the Scenes at the Museum, which is told through the perspective of a young girl growing up in 1950s um, Yorkshire in the north of England. And I sort of picked it up at that point. I'd, I'd sort of given up any thoughts of ever doing any kind of writing. And I read the back of it, and her name was Ruby Lennox. And I thought, oh, she's got my name. And it, it was kind of like, I think I remember picking it up a few times over a course of two weeks, but never actually opening it and reading it. And I finally did. I, I, I picked it up and read it. And then quite early in the book, she went, she's giving, recounting um, the, the, the story uh, of her naming, of, of when her mother named her. And so they're in the hospital. And so this is Ruby narrating. They could call me Dorothy or Miranda. That would be nice. Eve would have a certain resonance. Bunty, Bunty's her mother, Bunty's ack-ack eyes search the ceiling. She takes a deep, decisive breath and pronounces the name, my name, Ruby. Ruby, Auntie Babs repeats doubtfully. Ruby, Bunty confirms decisively. My name is Ruby. I am a precious jewel. I'm a drop of blood. I'm Ruby Lennox. And needless to say, I was hooked after that. And... Uh, so that was what drew me in, but but obviously you know there's more. You know, there has to be more to keep you there. And what kept me there was the way in which this this book, which tells four generations of women, um, primarily through the voice of Ruby, and through all the upheavals in the world, the two world wars, the turn of the century, the depression, the coronation of the queen, etc., et remaining focused on 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 the. the this family of, of women, and also like it, it, it focused on Ruby herself and, and, and her sort of her trajectory to, through life. And I sort of did see a lot of myself in her. In, in she was uh, quite a loner, so someone who her, her way of, of processing her you know her loneliness and her trauma was to stay within her herself, and. So I want to read, you know, a paragraph on on what I, you know, it's it's my favourite paragraph in the book, and I don't know if it'll appeal to 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 others like that. But when I, I read this, I, I I felt here is someone who has learnt that she's going to be her own sort of her own best friend. She's she's going to make her magic herself in in the world. She's about six years old at this point, and it's and it's Christmas time, um, and she wakes up in the middle of the night and. The mantelpiece clock, always running slow, chimes one, two, three. The curtains in the living room have been left open, and outside I can see the snow falling silently. There are great flakes, like goose feathers, and small curled ones, like swans down and great flurries, as if a flock of stormy petrels had shaken their feathers out. 
As I watch, the sky fills with clouds of snow feathers from every kind of bird there ever was, and even some that exist only in the imagination, like the bluebirds that fly over the rainbow. Most of the Christmas tree needles are on the floor by now, but I switch on the tree lights anyway. Then I start spinning the glass balls on the tree. If I work very hard at it, I can get them all spinning at the same time. Sometimes they bang together and dislodge glitter, which falls in a shower of fairy dust all over me. I still get emotional reading that, that, that passage, and I, I still can't figure out why that, you know, with all that happens in this book, you know, people dying, people going away to war, that's the one that, that gets me the most. And I, and I think that's, it, it, it just says so much, uh, you know, about that character. Um, and then, this bit is important to me because, in essence, um, if we were talking about the book that made me, this is the book that made me say, I am a writer. I'm going to do it. And so, you know, if you're a fan of my work, you, you have this book to thank. And if you're not, you have this book to blame. <laughs> um, and so at the end, Ruby also becomes um, a writer. And she, she's, she's planning out her... Well, she's, she's a writer throughout the whole book. I'm not giving it away. Uh, so... Uh, so She's talking about so this, this book of poetry that she wants to, to write about her whole family tree. And, and she says, there is room for everyone, Ada and Albert, Alice and Rachel. And she gives all the names. Um, and everyone will have a place amongst our branches because who is to say which of these is real and which is a fiction? In the end, it is my belief. Words are the only things that can construct a world that makes sense. And... Uh, I'm trying to, to do that in, you know, while I have been in, in my work. And coming from a strictly, you know, Lebanese family, when I left home at a very, you know, it was 19, I'd, feminism wasn't something that was even, I didn't even think when, you know, I know it's a kind of a you know, cliche, it's the late 90s at this point, and I just thought this was something that the Western world had done. We'd done that, you know, women here had done that, and, and, um, obviously, uh, it was a process of realizing, uh, no, we, we actually haven't, and, and, and starting to see the, the, the sort of the, you know, the prejudice I was up against, both as a as an Arab woman and as a woman. Um, and in the ten years or so that I've you know I've been writing in the media is, is such a this process of, of this uncovering all these these different. Um, layers of oppression and uh, a writer I've, I've re, I don't want to say rediscovered, but that I've been revisiting a lot because of the book that I am writing, which is about the stereotypes of womanhood and the construction of, of womanhood um, that forces or, or, or women of, of different, um, you know, different, different races, different ethnicities, and of course other, you know, queerness and, and disability as well. Um, which I don't, you know, I don't have that personal experience of, but I certainly see how it's all connected because it's all about how closely you are, you match up to this ideal construction of what a woman um, is or, or should be. And, you know, in essence, you know, uh, I, when I read back on her, uh, you know, I haven't actually read the book in many years as a whole, and... You know, there's, there's this phrase that we, we that we throw around a lot that you know when you say such and such was ahead of their time, and I feel like that's a it's a mis like it's a misnomer. People aren't no one is ahead of their time. They are just so in tune to what the world needs 
they, 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 they see the problems like your, um, oh, uh, your, your doctor, right? Like just knowing what is needed. Um, and unfortunately, it's a slow process of the rest of the world catching up. And I think that that certainly applies to um, Audre Lorde in, 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 in how she was able to, to, you know, through her experience as a, a lesbian, a black lesbian, a black feminist lesbian, um, to identify all the different ways in which uh, women are not only you know, oppressed, but divided and turned against each other and prevented, in a way, from really connecting and really creating a, a movement that, that can liberate all of us. Um, and so in this book, she's, she's essentially trying to reach across to, to white women to, to say, this is, this is what you're missing. This is, this is the part of us that you, that you don't see. Um, so she writes... I believe one of the reasons white women have such difficulty reading black women's work is because of their reluctance to see black women as women and different from themselves. To examine black women's literature effectively requires that we be seen as whole people in our actual complexities, as individuals, as women, as human, rather than as one of those problematic but familiar stereotypes provided in this society in place of genuine images of black women. And I believe this holds true for the literatures of other women of colour who are not black. And that's something I really love about her, is, is, is the way she can say, this is what I know as a black woman, and I think this is how I can relate to other women. Um, for as long as any difference between us means one of us must be inferior, then the recognition of any difference must be fraught with guilt. To allow women of colour to step out of stereotypes is too guilt-provoking, for it threatens the complacency of those women who view oppression only in terms of sex. I'll just skip ahead to this paragraph. Some problems we share as women, some we do not. You fear your children will grow up to join the patriarchy and testify against you. We fear our children will be dragged from a car and shot down in the street, and you will turn your backs upon the reasons they are dying. Uh, so you know, this is written in the early '80s, and and it's uh, you know it's more uh, um, present than, than, than ever. And in terms of these sort of two very different books and two very different writers, and and I, I, mean, I was too young to realize it at the time of why this book really had such an impact on me. And I realize now is I was so starved for representation. I had never picked up a book. Um, where I felt like the main character could be me. And so because of the, the name, essentially, first of all, of, of Ruby, and then the, the personality she happened to have, which, which I uh, identified with a lot, was the first time in a, in a work, you know, at the age of 22, that I thought, I feel like this character is, could be me. I feel like, you know, and, and so that just speaks to the, you know, the importance of, of having that, that, you know, not just sort of tokenistic, yes, we have a queer person, we have a black woman, we have a brown woman, you know, we're just sort of ticking the boxes, but to have the, uh, an authentic um, stories that, you know, can really um, speak, speak to, the, to, to the readers, especially to, to young girls. And it, it shows that there are, you know, in as much as we have these different experiences um, because of our sexuality because of our race and because, and all the other sort of differences that, that we have 
underneath that all, there is a, a common human um, you know, experience and a common experience of, of as women uh, in still a, a male-dominated world and that reaching that, like finding it, it sort of really does require this to um, all of us just to lower some defences, which is what, what, what Audrey was really sort of appealing to, to this idea of, of um, I know what I'm going to say is going to raise, you know, some defensiveness in you, but understand that the way you're reacting to me now, um, that's how men react to you when you um, to, to speak about, about, about your experiences uh, of being a woman and, and how you're treated by men. And so, um, yeah, I just want to just finish off by saying that, that there's um, such a, uh, you know, there's, there's such a broad um, expanse of, 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 uh, of literature and, and, and I consider, you know, songs and, and movies to be, you know, forms of, you know, of literature and text as well that, that we can find that can draw us in into feminism, they don't have to be specifically feminist texts, and and so mine was a the first book that, that was you know a, a a novel, and as I've grown and, and read and written a lot more, I'm starting to you know revisit old old, old things like Audrey Lord, and I still feel like I still have a um I know Eva Cox was talking about the need for optimism, in as much as I feel dejected in many time in many ways about where we are at, there's still that part of me inside that thinks I know that we can find that way. We can find that, that, that way to bridge all these gaps be, um, between us. And I think um, just part of it is to sort of re revisit uh, the books that have long been maybe on our shelves and, and, and sort of rediscover that what we're going through, other women have, have, have been through um, as well. Thank you. So we're all here today to ruminate on the books that have shaped our feminist selves and our writing selves. I was thinking about what to write for this, filtering through my past, turning the books in my head over that have had an impact, and obviously thinking about how to sound really smart and well-read in front of you. <laughs> uh, but I was checking off the feminist texts that we've all read, books that have become vital in the wider conversation for a reason and ones that will become vital. And obviously those have been an important part of my understanding and growth as a person. But I think the most important books in my life, the ones that really set me on the path to who I am now, I experienced them before I even knew what feminism was. It was long before calling me a fat feminist slut on the internet was even a sparkle in the eye of a men's rights activist. <laughs> I was born and raised in regional Queensland. My dad is a butcher and my mum is a cleaner. His dad was a butcher, her mum was a cleaner. I have three brothers. The primary school I went to had 32 kids in its entirety, I can speak. And in my grade, it was just three boys and me. I was the first person in my family to graduate high school. So my formative years were spent in a world that wasn't concerned with feminism or really any concepts about life further than getting through each day. My overworked country school teacher was trying to make sure his composite class of grades four, five, six, and seven were across the basics. And my parents were busy making sure there was a next meal on the table. So partly because everyone was busy surviving, partly because I was the only girl in my day-to-day -day life, and probably partly because of my personality, I was a really lonely child. It's a joke about my personality. <laughs> but I now have an appreciation for that loneliness because it allowed me to dive into the books that I now realize create the feminist monster that you see before you. 
Before I had the vocabulary to talk about my thoughts and feelings, I became obsessed with what you might call girls on adventures. I devoured Ina Blyton's The Children of Cherry Tree Farm, pretending to be just like them when I visited my best friend, the pregnant horse that lived in the dry paddock near our house, which is sadly a true story. <laughs> I loved the famous five and the carefree ways they spent their days. I identified most with George, the girl who wanted to be treated like a boy because I felt I was constantly fighting to be treated the same as my brothers. This was also a theme in my favorite series, the books about Trixie Belden. They were books written from the 1940s to the 1980s and featured Trixie Belden and her best friend Honey who solved mysteries. I loved Trixie because she was brash, bold, and wasn't perfect like Nancy Drew, not that I'm pitting women against each other. <laughs> <laughs> she got annoyed at her brothers, got frustrated at people for treating her differently and made mistakes. But she was smart, fought hard for her independence, and was insistent that people take her seriously. I loved her and I understood her and I felt understood. I should say here that I also loved her best friend, Honey, who was tall and beautiful and owned horses. It would take me a little while to realize I think I loved her in a different way. <laughs> but the friendship in those books led me to exclusively devour books about female friendship, about girls striving to be treated the same as everyone else. I think it was what I focused on because it was what I was missing. I didn't have other girls around and I was constantly struggling to break free from my position as the girl and everything that brought with it. Whether it was a saddle club or my beloved babysitter's club, I just wanted to read about the lives of girls, except for Mallory, obviously. It's a babysitter's club <laughs> joke. Anyone? Right, one person. <laughs> this obviously expanded and keeps expanding, but I do think these books kick-started a life of prioritizing women and thinking about equality. I think I could have been a much different person completely if I didn't have these building blocks when I was figuring out who I was. The other important touchstones of my writing alongside feminism are being funny, being queer, and being fat. It may be the most stereotypical thing that's ever been said, but when I was about 13, I read Ellen DeGeneres' book, My Point, and I do have one, and it blew my mind. This was well before she came out. Um, I'm such a basic white lesbian. Um, <laughs> But it wasn't until I started writing this, actually, that I really, truly realized how much of an impact her book, that book in particular, had on me. I could only recall vague topics that she wrote about, but I have the memory of shaking with laughter, amazed that words written on a page could make tears come out of my eyes because they were so funny. And it planted in me the idea that women were allowed to be silly because it's such a silly book and nonsensical and make dumb jokes. It also implanted the idea that women are much funnier than men, an idea that is true to this very day. My relationship to queer literature blossomed the first time I read Sarah Waters Tipping the Velvet, um, written by Waters in London during a politically charged period where queer theory had started influencing ideas about sex and feminism and identity, where Ellen's book had caused tears of laughter, Tipping the Velvet caused my breath to catch. Yes, because I was young and desperate to find portrayals of queer women that weren't about Christy from the Babysitter's Club. Another one? <laughs> one person's loving this. Sick. <laughs> It's funny if you know the reference. Um, and, I was, and I was finally getting to read about romantic and sexual relationships between women that I didn't have to read in it for myself. Um, in those formative years, I didn't really experience any age-appropriate books about fatness. It's really only in the last few years have I read writers like Roxane Gay, who writes about it in her books in a way that I finally feel seen. Um, and that brings me to my other legacy book, which is The Internet. <laughs> It obviously has many flaws, but the internet has given us access to the writing and voices we might otherwise have missed. There is no doubt in my mind I would be a much worse 
feminist if I hadn't had the privilege of witnessing articles and conversations and arguments about things happen on the internet between women. Often we are blessed and those are then turned into published works, such as with Renietto Lodge's Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, which was first seen as a viral blog post. And without the internet, we wouldn't have seen vital tweets, such as Raida Aisha A. Siddiqui's tweet, please show some respect during this difficult time between birth and death. <laughs> because importantly to me, the internet has not only given a serious feminist discourse, but also feminist comedy, something that I found necessary and sustaining. It has shown me that poetry can be hilarious by introducing me to people like Kira Lindsay Bird. We got to experience websites like The Toast with the comedy stylings of Daniel Mallory Orberg and Reductress, who fight the patriarchy with brutal satire. The internet allowed them to build a base, flourish, and then publish books. But all the writing I've spoken about today, both on and offline, has helped shape me into the writer I am, and I'm grateful for that. My personal aim is to one day write a legacy book for the lonely, fat, funny, queer girls out there who want to read about a girl like them having adventures. But in the meantime, I hope they're reading everyone else first. Thank you. Um, I grew up in Malaysia, a former outpost of empire and a culturally diverse country located on the equator. Its location meant the place was a melting pot of races and cultures, which meant children there had different languages and dialects flying over their heads all day and every day. Just as the country adapted the British model of democracy and public service, so too did it model its, its curriculum on the English system. The English curriculum I encountered throughout primary and secondary schools included all the texts we would recognize these days as canonical or very well-known or classics, basically. As children, we thought nothing of memorizing Wordsworth or reciting Hiawatha, reading Charles Dickens or learning about the Villanelle, believe it or not. Like many kids there, I started the reading business on ladybird books and the standard issue fairy tales. Mine, I always sided with the witch. Then moved on to Annie Blyton. The idea of climbing a magic faraway tree and discovering a new land every week was enchanting. What on earth was sea cake and ginger pop? And how do I get some in Pataling Jaya? <laughs> and how does school go me yearn for boarding school life with secret midnight feasts a la St. Clair's and Mallory Towers? I knew these kids didn't look like me and they didn't talk like me, but little by way of mass entertainment in Malaysia did. Most of our books and films were imported from the UK or the US and to a lesser extent, India and Hong Kong. So kids back then and even now have a pretty relaxed attitude towards provenance. We were real life, entertainment was make-believe and difference was everyday lived experience. Like most other Chinese kids growing up, I had what we would these days call a tiger mother, for whom achievement was measured thrice a year via school reports, and therefore all free time should have been spent studying in order to ace the tests. Drummed into us was the dictum that education was the key to a good life, and the only acceptable professions were that of doctor, banker, lawyer, engineer, or accountant. Needless to say, I failed, and for that, we can blame books. <laughs> My parents had taken the precautionary measure of, of ensuring successful children by having in the house a set of quite beautifully produced children's classics that no one else in my family but me had read before or since. <laughs> Their plan worked, as you can see. You can guess what books they were. Alice in Wonderland, Huckleberry Finn, Heidi, Black Beauty, Treasure Island, and the like. For a curious kid, 
These books afforded a glimpse into a big elsewhere that I was desperate to grow up and experience. I fell down the rabbit hole with Alice, floated down the Mississippi, kindled a lifelong fascination with vampires, spent one set of school holidays on Laura Ingalls' Little House on the Perry series, and read about space and Anne Frank and Helen Keller. I read Trixie Belden too, and Agatha Christie and Nancy Drew. I read my mom's cookbooks, I read her fashion magazines, and I read trashy novels as well. But there are other books that, are, that act like talismans. One was Little Women. Like almost every woman I know who read Louisa May Alcott, except Karen Goldsworthy, <laughs> we wanted to be Jo March. Willful, writerly, hot-tempered, determined to forge her own path and not accept the gender roles embraced by her sisters and mother. Alongside Alice and Emma and Trixie and Nancy and George and Annie, Jo was a rebel who refused to conform to norms. She wanted to be free to experience and to do the things that boys and men could. She chose, she disregarded convention, and when she marries, it's to a man for his brain. <laughs> to a younger growing up as one of three sisters to a father who prized sons, my brother is indeed the youngest, this Massachusetts teenager, Jo March, showed how a life could be forged in a world of seemingly limited options for women. Another book was Jane Eyre. Jane's bursts of ferocity at the order of things and her determination to maintain her sense of self to the extent of walking away when she had to left its mark on me. And of course, there was the complicated and terribly untidy Mr. Rochester. But for me, it was always Bertha who pulled focus. I was completely captured by the idea of this mad woman in the attic who roamed the mansion at night, who had this highly exoticized past, and who burnt the whole lot down in the end. In my late teens, I moved to Melbourne and as a student, and, as a, and at university discovered feminism and post-colonialism. These two areas of study tilted my world on its axis and gave me tools that would forevermore change the way I read. Suddenly, the books I had read were more than just so-called great works. Read against the grain, these books could be filled with silences, omissions, misrepresentations, and mad women in attics. Which brings me to a book I consider practically perfect, I must confess, Jean Reese's White Sargasso Sea. The book is a feminist and resolutely anti-colonial response to Jane Eyre and gives Bronte's Bertha a name, a past, a history. I am here in England, the book implicitly says, because you were there. I'm here because your empire ran slaves from my home in Jamaica. All the uncomfortable truths about British colonial his history that happens off stage in Jane Eyre are manifestly center stage and played out in White Sargasso Sea. I told you that Mr. Rochester was untidy. When thinking through these books today, what struck me was how little these books, how much, sorry, was how these books rewarded each rereading, re endured, and saddeningly, how little has changed. In Little Women, for instance, Joe says, and I quote, I find it poor logic to say that because women are good, men should vote. Because women are good, women should vote. Men do not vote because they are good. They vote because they are male, and women should vote not because we are angels and men are animals, but because we are human beings and citizens of this country. Yes, women today have the vote, but we don't have to look far to be reminded we are unequal citizens as far as representation in many, in many areas is concerned, and that our battles have to be fought and refought, and our wins are frequently fragile. 
from Jane Eyre, how can you not love a book that opens a chapter with, I resisted all the way? <laughs> Where Little Women Had Rebellion and Jane Eyre Had Self-Reliance, Wise Our Guess of C, though, showed that sometimes you need to start again by burning it all down, since a burning platform is sometimes the only way in which you can ensure you can be heard. Heat, judiciously applied, has led to great acts of resistance to change and forced dialogue. I should at this point also acknowledge the writers who wrote about my culture in English. I did write a thesis on Maxine Hong Kingston's Woman Warrior. I made um, my then boyfriend read Amy Tan before I brought him home to, to meet my parents. And, I, and, I, and recently, I think Celeste Ng's um, Everything I Never Told You is, is a terrific book, actually. And of course, the writer and filmmaker Trin Min Ha, woman native, other whom, whom I encountered in university is a really, really valuable book in my life, really. I also suspect my list today would look very different if I had grown up in Australia. And I'm only glad that my bicultural teenage daughter is able to read books today by Australian writers such as Melina Maqueta, um, Maxine Benebe-Clark, she really like Amelia Westlake by Erin Goff and Zoya Patel alongside J.K. Rowling and some of the other stuff that she reads. I did try Little Women with her, as all mothers would, I imagine, but I suspect it's too much of Mama's book at this stage for her to, cut, to form her own relationship with the book. I like cohesion, so let me try to bring all this stuff together. Nonconformity, resistance, difference. These very much inform and underpin my feminism, held together by communities of women. And which brings me to a final book, and um, which is also a version of the book that Ruby, um, Ruby had. And this book travels around in my handbag ever since I found out that um, Penguin um, made pocket-sized editions of um, lots of modern writers and sold them for two bucks fifty. I've given. The, I've probably bought an entire print run of this to give to people, basically. But I just want to read um, one little section here. So, um, where she says, As women, we have been taught either to ignore our differences or to view them as causes for separation and suspicion rather than as forces for change. Without community, there is no liberation. But community must not mean a shedding of our differences, nor the pathetic pretense that these differences do not exist. Those of us who stand outside the circle of this society's definition of acceptable women, those of us who have been forced, forged in the crucibles of difference, those of us who are poor, who are lesbians, who are black, who are older, know that survival is not an academic skill. It is learning how to stand alone, unpopular and sometimes reviled, and how to make common cause with those others identified as outside the structures in order to define and seek a world in which we can all flourish. It is learning how to take our differences and make them strengths. For the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. In a world of possibility for us all, our personal visions help lay the groundwork for political action. In our world, divide and conquer must become define and empower. Thank you. Thank you all so much for those um, really individual responses to those books that are so important to you. And we, we wanted to talk about those personal responses to books be, 
in this sort of more public setting because um, I think we all have those defining books and we all have those defining moments and, and sometimes we share them and sometimes we don't. And so it's such a privilege to hear the stuff that turns you on and the stuff that's important to you and the stuff that's made you the people you are today. So thank you so much because I know it's, it's a bit of an ask in some ways. It's a bit of a non-traditional panel. On that sort of note, um, I'm just wondering whether that sense of awakening, that sense of discovery still happens to you as grown-up readers or are you too aware of of what you're reading? Anyone can take that one. I, it, look, if, it definitely hasn't stopped. Um, I think anyone who's passionate about reading and literature, that's an ongoing thing and you're constantly looking for that experience, that kind of um, awakening. I've just finished reading Sally Rooney's Normal People, which I've had that experience for, for me. I just found it. Um, expressed things that I'd perhaps experienced but never found a way to talk about myself, Um, ways at which people relate to each other in intimate relationships. And it was absolutely um, one of those moments. I don't think until we die those moments will be over with any luck. I I guess, I don't know. I mean, I I have them um, in my practice as a writer. You know, I'll read a book and think, aha, this is how to do it. Mm. Um, so it's not so much about what kind of person I am or what I believe. It's it's much more a professional thing, I suppose. Mm. I, somebody, I think it was Christy, um, mentioned before we we came on stage here. She said, "Are you going to talk about possession? Because A.S. Byatt's Possession is one of my favourite novels, one of my hospital books." Um, yeah. And partly it's because I had tried and failed to write um, a novel set in the 19th century. Now, those of you who've tried to do it will know just how appallingly hard it is to write a good historical novel, you know, because you need to not make factual mistakes and you need to not, you know, inadvertently commit anachronisms, but you don't know what you don't know, Mm. you know, so you can write something that's going to make somebody go, oh, God. Um, And and there are problems in other ways. You You can't get your head into someone from the 19th century you know, as, as a, the great historian, um, Greg Denning, Melbourne historian Greg Denning once said, the past is not just us dressed up in funny clothes and speaking funny speak. You know, I mean, he knew that the past, as a historian, he knew better than most people the past was unknowable. But the way that Byatt had done it as a novelist made me think that's, that's a way it could be done, mm. you know. So, yeah, for me, I, I make discoveries about writing, mm. you know, that, that are provided to me by other better writers, yeah. Mm. Oh, I was just saying it happens all the time where I'm like, oh, that's what good writing is like. I thought I was okay, but now I'm questioning everything. But it's good. And also the same with um, when I say really good jokes, if I, my response is only jealousy and anger that I didn't think of it. (laughs) I'm okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah, um, I think uh, Eleanor Ferrante's book, sorry, Eleanor Ferrante's book, her Neapolitan series, um, is probably the books that, after, you know, Kate Atkinson's one, like a non-fiction, a fiction book, sorry, um, that kind of affected me almost um, as strongly. Yeah, her, her, her 
Neapolitan series is from the moment I opened the, the, the first page. So, yeah, I still do get... Um, and again, books, women-centred um, mm. and without sort of being, you know, laboriously uh, 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 about women. It's just so natural and, and effortless that, yeah, why, why wouldn't women be at the centre um, uh, of, of stories? I always say that um, each book teaches you a lesson if, if you're looking for it, actually. And just as you find a book when you need it to, it's one of those weird, the weird things. Well, it happens to me anyway when I... You know, you just pick up a novel or book at random and and it's the book you need at that particular moment. Um, but there are some things that I I do go back and use as crutches when I'm feeling like I need a hospital book, you know, and when I, when, when I feel like I need to remember what writing is like. And, some, and that happens sometimes when I was editing particular types of things that were very rote and, 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 and tricky. I would go back to remind myself, go back and pull my copy of Pauline Kael, whose film criticism I love and adore, and read it to remind myself that shortish, popular, accessible writing need not be terrible, basically. <laughs> and, uh, and it could be funny as well, too. Um, if you may put it a joke, I'm yours. Um, MFK Fishes, um, who, wrote, who wrote, who did a lot of food journalism, I do love her, her books as well, too. And I go back to them a bit, yeah. Mm, good. Eternal discovery. I like that. Um, just on this issue of um, recognition versus reading oneself into books. So we sort of talked about recognising yourself in Alibrandi and being in Sydney, and so that speaks to you. But equally, reading Ruby in Kate Atkinson or Joe March. And do you think we go searching for these entry points and do we really need them to, um, to find the books, you know, that are important to us? Or is it happenstance? Or is it the timing, the, the, the luckiness, like you were saying, Funling, of, you know, you find the book at the right book at the right time? How do you... It can, it can be both. I mean, oh, well, you know, in terms of the, the Kate Atkinson book, um, it was just pure chance. Um, somehow, like, that book was there at that time. Um, and, yeah, it was there and... I, you know, it was, it was, I mean, it's a thick book, right? I mean, I was, I was, I was in a hostel. I was, I was 22 years old and I was partying every night. I didn't want to read it, but, but I was just like, I just kept picking it up and then eventually I did. And, 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 and um, so in a way that was just, you know, a, bo a book that, that just happened to come, to come into, into my life. And, but the, the, the Audrey Lord book, there's a sister outsider, which I've gone back to and I went back to because I was wanted to reference her and use it in the book I am writing. So, um, yes, it can be both. And, you know, it was three, through going back to reading her book and, you know, many years later where a lot of, I realise now when I first read Audrey Lord, a lot of it was like, okay, I connect, I connect with it up here, but I hadn't really had the experiences to... Uh, you know, connect with it here, I guess, and 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 um, in, in some parts of it, and, and whereas now I'm like, oh, exactly what she's talking about. This is like what happened to me last year, and this is this, and this is that, and and so um, yeah, some sometimes it's it, you know it's 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 either or and both. You know, sometimes it's luck or happenstance, and then sometimes it's you get a book back for a particular purpose, and then it reopens it for you. Mm. Yeah, I think um, certainly it's that experience where 
you're a different person at different stages of your life and you experience books differently depending on when um, you pick them up. And I think I've certainly had books that I've picked up when I'm younger and then not at all been interested in and had to be persuaded by someone to revisit it and then totally loved it. Um, And I think as a writer as well, like I've gone through different stages that I read books for different reasons. So, you know, I went through a phase particularly I think in my early 20s where I was just interested in the language and so I didn't care about anything else. If like the sentences were beautiful then that's what I cared about. Um, But then I started reading for different things. So as I learnt my craft I was like, okay, I want to really hone in on how the characters are written or how this book is structured or um, the politics of the book. Um, And I think the experience of learning my own politics and you know learning feminist politics as well has completely changed the way that I read books and um, I used to read a lot of like um, books by American men like that I just went through this huge like phase for years where I would read American men and I and I went revisited some of them recently and I just can't read them anymore because they're, you know, they're just um, they they have really disgusting elements. Um, that was during your fedora. That was during yeah. your fedora stage. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's. I had a very similar experience to that. I am um, probably from the age of about my late twenties. I think I would periodically sort of reach the peak where I realised I had uh, as many books as I wanted to own. And given that I kept wanting to buy new ones, it meant that I had to start throwing books out. Um, and I would every now and again, periodically, I would go through my bookshelves at home and at work and cull. And so out would go male writers every single time. There goes the Lawrence. There goes the Huxley. There goes the Hemingway. You know, it was always a whole raft of male writers having learned what I had learned in the interim. Those books I knew, Lawrence in particular, for obvious reasons, I knew I wouldn't be able to read again despite all the good things about it. It was just not something that I could stomach anymore. So, yes, that that was a a similar experience to me too. I I definitely did try to seek out any lesbian content (laughs) whatsoever in any book in any library since I was born. Um, (laughs) It's easier now but because you can use the internet but just trawling through the library, just flicking through books. It was the equivalent of like trying to find it on TV shows and um, watching some terrible things to get any, you know, any representation. And it was just uh, harder in libraries to do that. That was, that went through my mind when Erin said you went searching out, you know, How to Kiss as a Lesbian. I'm like, how many books did you have to read to get there? Yeah. But, and you which know, book is it? I need to know. <laughs> I, think, I think we do need to extend the conversation about the Babysitter's Club, though. <laughs> because um, any, literally yeah, any time. Like, I think that there are certain texts where, um, like, if you are, like, a closeted lesbian, as, you know, hypothetical. Hypothetically. Um, <laughs> And, you know, you're nine or something and you're you're given it – there's a choice, right? The choice is between Sweet Valley High, yeah. right, or the Babysitter's Club. You Obviously, you choose the Babysitter's Club mm-hmm. and it only becomes obvious, like, years down the track why you've been attracted to that. And then you find out that the author mm. is actually a closeted lesbian. So the plot thickens. Plot twist. I'm well, – <laughs> I'm putting it on my programming notes for next one. We're just going to do a whole babysitter's session, I, workshop, book club. I literally wise. would love that. I'm mystified how I missed a babysitter's club. And what was the other one? Sweet Valley Sweet High. Sweet Valley High. Oh. 
Hmm. Babysitter's Club had more girls in it, so that was better. Okay. <laughs> I was I, interested. I, I don't know. I never felt that I was looking for myself in books. I, I was trying to get away from myself. Um, but so it was interesting when I was probably in my early 20s, I, started, I discovered Catherine Mansfield. Yeah. And I thought, you know, this woman's um, ideas are my ideas, her desires are my desires. Um, I can, I can, I recognise some of the things I think and feel in the stuff that she writes. I think, yes, I've looked and seen. So she was a bit of a, of a revelation. But I, I loved Ruby's story about about Ruby Lennox's name, because of course I've never found anyone with my name um, <laughs> until my, my surname isn't Lennox. <laughs> no, but, but, <laughs> but still, uh, but yeah. until of course the Wentworth by election, and. Uh. <laughs> And I thought, thank Good God, finally, after too. 65 years, people will be able to spell my name correctly. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, and just, we're going to have to wrap up really quickly, but just on that um, being a reader and then how that informs your your writing. Ruby, you mentioned um, in reading Audre Lorde, it, that's that sense of, or she says, that it's about... Um, we have to lower our defences um, in what we read and that's really how we get the most out of it. How has that sentiment impacted your, you as a, as a writer? God, well, I'm writing about it now. Um, in, well, how, like this process of, of deciding to write this book, um, which came out of a, an article I wrote that kind of went a little bit more viral than I was expecting um, and and I had no intention of, of writing a, a, a book on it. I, I wasn't even sure I wanted to write the article. I nearly like withdrew it from, you know, it was in The Guardian and I was like, I can't write, I'm like, I can't write this. This is, I'm like, no, people hate me and I nearly withdrew it but then I didn't in the end. Um, but the response I got from women of colour that said were all over you know, Australia, America, just saying, wow, like I... For, you know, I read this and you've just, you've described my life. Like, like I, I feel, someone's talking about being seen, right? I, you know, you said when you, you felt seen and, I, and the response was so overwhelming and the people like, you, you, you know, are you going to write more on this? Will you write a book? And then, you know, as publishers do, they, 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 they write to the internet and so then, you know, that's kind of like, um, I was getting publishers asking me to send a proposal when I hadn't written a proposal yet. <laughs> it was all a bit whirlwind. So then, um, and I've completely forgotten your question. Um, how does it affect me? Yes, to, to lower the defences. Um, I had to lower my defences just to write that, that piece and, and knowing that I was going to get a lot of pushback and um, and just to sort of kind of... Uh, accept that, that that was going to happen. Um, but then in, in the process of um, talking to these other women, you know, brown and black women, and then reading, you know, Audrey Lord and reading other, other books as well. And what it's also taught me is to um, try to let uh, go of the need to, to put a filter on your work, which I realise I've been doing. Um, as well and out of you know there's, there's that fear if I say this it's too much and I won't get published again or no one will like me and no one will read my stuff and I'll be an outsider yeah, outsider so um but you know Audrey Lord's work to me is really something it's the work of someone who says I have to say this no matter what mm. happens to me because it's not me only, yeah. about me. Um, so that, that's how I 
sort of approach. And, and, I, and I try to take that because, you know, um, I get, you know, in, in the same way I get frustrated when, when people get, do, you know, white, white people get defensive when we talk about race. Um, I try to practice that because, um, you know, in terms of, you know, I'm straight and even though I don't really like men, sorry, um, but I am actually straight, so I usually, I'm usually single. Um, so, um, and sorry. I, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's a terrible shame. Um, but the point being is, is that when I, you know, if I'm reading works by, by queer women where, where they, you know, make, you know, cracks about, about how annoying straight people are, sometimes I'll feel that, that, that first sign of, of defensiveness and I'll just be like, wait a minute, I don't... And then it's like, oh, Ruby, this is not you. This is not you. This is not about you. And if you get defensive, then you're making it you know, about you. So, so it, it, it's a process of, of learning. And, you know, Audrey talks about that as well, of knowing when you're acting as the oppressor yeah. and to not do that. Sorry, that was a really long-winded answer. Erin, you looked like you were about to have a... Oh, look, uh, just when we were talking about um, that, that um, trying to get rid of that filter that you write, and I was just going to say that's what I love about Eleanor Ferrante's writing, and it doesn't surprise me that, that you're a fan of hers because she does that thing where she can just say what you can't believe she's actually saying like she just tells her how it is and I think it's interesting that she writes under a pseudonym like I think about that a lot because um that would be really that would be a nice luxury I think um and I think it, it's got to affect the way that she feels safe to write that stuff um yeah that's all I was gonna say thank you we are sadly going to have to wrap up there, but I'm going to refer back to Kate Atkinson um, and Ruby, your reference to her of saying words are the only thing to make sense of a world that doesn't make sense. And so I think we all, as readers and writers, feel that. If you enjoyed this presentation of Rights for Festivals, please jump onto the Rights for Women website, www.rightsforwomen.com, to see what else we have on offer. There's Mudgee, there's the National Young Writers Festival, we have Scone coming up, and the Feminist Writers Festival yet to come. So jump on onto our website and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting writing festivals. They're a really important part of our writing, reading and living community.